You're listening to Ignoring the Ordinary, a podcast from Wiser with Tom Patterson. At Wiser, we believe when people have the courage to ignore the ordinary and do things differently, amazing things can happen. The most innovative and creative ideas come from challenging the status quo. Ideas that can transform industries, shift mindsets and bring real change to the world we live in. Spare Room is no stranger to ignoring the ordinary. They have played a huge role in democratising an industry that has traditionally been weighted against many different groups in society. They've changed the meaning of the word rent from simply occupying a room in a house to mean becoming part of a community. And they remain at the forefront of the cultural conversation around homes, houses and generation rent. I'm here to talk with Matt Hutchinson, Communications Director at Spare Room. We'll be discussing how Spare Room has gone about differentiating itself in a crowded landscape, how they have changed as a business during the 12 years Matt has been with the company, and why ignoring the ordinary has been so important for its success. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Nice to be here, thanks. Well, why don't we start then with a little bit about your background? Have you always worked in communications? I haven't. And I think that's often the case with people who work in communications is you drift in from another area. And Mm. my other area was completely different. I did a music degree, which sort of makes me old in communications to start with. But I also did a pop music degree, which makes me old full stop, I think. Um, So pop, it was specifically It was a pop music degree. degree. It doesn't exist anymore, which is probably not surprising. But um, yeah, so I did that. And then the idea was to become a rock star, moved to London with a band when I graduated, you know, that didn't necessarily pan out as we planned. Um, and then I drifted off to work in the music industry and the bass player in the band drifted off into web design. Um, and it kind of came full circle a while later when he developed the site that then turned into Spare Room right. um, and approached me to come and work for him to write some content initially. And that was 12 years ago now. And it, it sort of started as a you know, a job in content writing, doing a bit of PR, and it's developed from there. Mm. And was it called Spare Room at the time? So the original site, which started in 1999, was called intolondon.com. But then obviously, when that developed to be a kind of national thing, we needed a and then it didn't have the word London in it. Sure. And so Spare Room was born in 2004. Amazing. Which makes us 15 years old this year. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thanks. And was the was the purpose of the site back then, or, or what? Did it exist as a site initially? Yes. So it, was a, it originally was a website, but when Rupert, our founder, first developed it, the idea was to be more of a right move sales and letting site. And he had this kind of vision of making it easy to find a place to rent. Um, so m- more rents than sales, actually, to find a place to rent more easily than scouring local newspapers and ads in shop windows and all the usual things that happened back in the 90s. Um, and at the last minute, on the last day before he launched, he tacked on a little flat share notice board thinking it might be useful and quickly realised that was basically the bit of the site people were using, which was really frustrating for him because he put all this work into all the rest of it and spent a couple of hours on the bit people were using. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had the sense and the kind of, I guess, humility to go, okay, that's what people want, let's mm-hmm. lean into that and just develop that bit and developed it and that turned out to be what turned into Spare Room. Wow. So I guess at the time there weren't that many other providers for that kind of service. No, we kind of came around at an interesting time because not only were we developing a particular solution to a problem we were doing it at the time when the world was moving online you know mm-hmm. the this sort of 90s a lot of this stuff happened in a way that people sort of coming into the market now would laugh at you know mm-hmm. you'd find somewhere to live on a card in a shop window or you'd trawl through the ads in loot and sort of sit in a phone box with a stack of 20ps just phoning people um and it was bonkers you know it was really hard it was difficult to find places it was difficult to know what you were getting into when you'd found somewhere sure. and 
bringing all that online with the benefit of maps and photos and eventually video and all sorts of info just made absolute sense. So when he told you initially about what he was doing and I guess sort of said, come over and, and write some content for us, were you sort of surprised that you thought about that kind of area a lot as potentially something that you might be interested in? No, but um, so when we were doing our music degree, he did the same degree I did and he did his module in web design. Right. Um which is what kind of kicked all this off, really. We did various modules separately from the main course, and I did one in journalism, and I'd always been interested in writing a bit. Mm. But then I'd sort of written a few press releases for the band we were in and bits of marketing stuff, and he looked at them and thought, he's all right at that. Mm. Um, I could do with somebody to write stuff. I'll see if he's interested. And it never occurred to me I wasn't looking for that kind of work at all. So how many people were, were part of Spare Room when you when you sort of arrived? So I think when I arrived, there were four people, and the business was still based in a shed on Rupert's dad's farm out, <laughs> kind of outside a town outside Manchester so you know it was it was basically I think four staff and quite a lot of spiders at that wow point. and so not London based no no spare room's always been a kind of northwest based company our main mm-hmm. office moved from the farm to Macclesfield and eventually to Manchester so right okay and how many of you are there now it's about 70 75 of us something like that now um main office in manchester we've got a small office in london for comms and some of the front end web stuff and we've got a few people in new york as well now mm, okay wow so going international <clears throat> yeah fantastic and i guess thinking about spare room today then what makes you kind of unique to other renting providers i think it's the understanding that when you share a property that it's not really the property that's the important thing it's the people you live with and mm. You know, the, that classic mantra of location, location, location works for buying a house. And yes. it probably works for renting a house. But when you're living with other people, the people are going to make the difference. You know, it's not the bricks and mortar. It's not the location. Those are important things. Mm. But actually, the other people inside that property with you when you shut the door at night and that's your home, mm. are the thing that are going to make the massive difference between, you know, having a great year or a year when you don't really want to go home at the end of the day. Um, and that's, you know, it's always been people first with us. So how do you kind of facilitate, I guess, that that people first mentality and, and make sure that when people are on the site, they feel like it's people first, I guess? It's a couple of things. One of them is just to keep the service simple, mm. because actually the core of what we do is fairly straightforward. It's just showing people things they might be interested in and letting them find what they need. Mm. Um, and it's counterintuitively, maybe it's not making it too gimmicky. We could introduce a load of bells and whistles that... Uh, you know, kind of match people up in some algorithmic fashion. And there's definitely elements of that we're exploring. But it's to make sure people can find what they're looking for and they can tell people about themselves. And and it's still a bit of a struggle because people do come looking for a room in a location in a certain budget and think about the flatmate second because they're in a rush sure. and there's practicalities to deal with. So it's making that balance of giving people the practical information about the property, but trying to encourage them to express themselves a bit more as well. Mm. You know, whether it's through the ad copy or adding a photo or a video or going to one of our speed flatmating events and meeting people. You mm. know. You're right. I guess it's changing a mindset because some people might still have the thought in their head, oh, I'm going to have to just put up with housemates. That's part of the deal, you know, especially in London. But actually, it could be a real joy and, and the highlight, I guess, of renting a place. And we deal with people at a point where they don't necessarily have three months to kick back and make the right decision they Mm -hmm. might have three or four weeks to move in they might have less Mm -hmm. and so finding a place is really important and they don't always have the luxury of thinking about the people so it's finding the right balance and making sure that we lean towards that wherever we can and make sure that although renting and sharing is a necessity for people that shouldn't mean that they have a functional experience Mm -hmm. they should have a 
be able to create a space that feels like home, even if it's only for six months or 12 months. Or um, So we could sit around and hammer home. It's all about people based on the flatmates, don't think about anything else. But people have practicalities. So sure. we're always looking for that balance between what people feel they need immediately and what we can add to that to improve the experience. Yeah. I mean, I've used spare room, I think, on several properties that I've moved into. Always had a fantastic experience with it. And I've always been impressed with the filtering options, I guess. And, and to your point, you can sort of put them into two buckets, really. It's in terms of property and actually who you'd want to live with as well. And you can get very, very specific, which I've always thought was a really great feature. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I think that's the nature of doing anything online these days. Initially, it was just everything's online and wow, look at all this choice. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, wow, look at all this choice. What do I do with that? It's a bit overwhelming. And so the process people have gone through is how can I find a room? then how can I find a good room in the area I want to live in at the right price? And then, okay, so what's going to make that a good experience? And how can I find the right place to live with the right people and have a great year? So I think with the the, the filtering, you can be very specific and you mm. can, you know, and we can help with that. There's things we're working on now where we can help maybe curate the experience yeah. a bit. And we can suggest people that not necessarily you've got fundamental connections with because that is something you can only really work out when you meet people. Sure. But we can start showing people things that might give them an icebreaker or give them a, you know, a way to start the conversation. It might be shared interest. It might be having grown up in the same area. It might mm. be there's, there's things we can show people and say, look, here's something you've got in common because that's often a great way of starting a conversation. Mm, 100%. I guess we've kind of talked then about people being at the very focus of, of your guys. Thinking about your role, I guess, and what you see Spare Room's role being within the renting landscape. How would you describe that? So I think uh, on in simple terms, we could easily just sit there being a flat share site that introduces people to each other. Successful business, everything's fine. Mm. Um, but it feels like we renting is such an important thing at the moment in the kind of national conversation and how people live and what part that plays Absolutely. in people's happiness. And we've always felt like we need to occupy the space a bit as well and stand up for the idea of renting, the idea of flat sharing is, it, yes, it might be a necessity, but it shouldn't just be something that is a last thought. So when people are thinking about housing policy, when people are thinking about the rental market in general, often renters are second class citizens mm. compared to homeowners in the, you know, the kind of UK mindset. And flat sharers are often second class renters or feel, feel that way, and yeah. it, then they shouldn't do. And so we've always felt like we should give that bit of the market a voice. And, you know, we don't speak for anybody in particular but we can speak on behalf of a lot of people because you know in the UK now we've got something like 9 million users that's a lot of people it's and uh, most of those people rent you know they're, they're the people looking for the rooms not the people offering them and um, so it feels like we have a responsibility to get involved in the conversations and raise some of those issues and also celebrate some of the great stuff that happens when people come together because life is basically about the good stuff that happens when people interact whether that's working together or living together or creating stuff together or in a relationship or you know I mean you used the word home earlier I guess it is broadening that definition it's not just about owning a house to make a home it feels like actually there's so much more that makes a home yeah and I think um I think we've we've got to the point where we've got this word home ownership, where the yeah. home and the ownership are kind of squashed together as one idea. And everybody wants and needs a home, and that should be safe and affordable and comfortable and give you a base to live a productive and happy life. But also ownership is about a sense of belonging and contribution to where you live that can be more than just owning your home. It could be about the community you live in, the community you live with, the mm -hmm. kind of the area, you know, and we need 
I think people want a sense of ownership and belonging now more than ever. We've lived through decades of this idea that we should all be individuals and self-sufficient yeah. and, you know, just sort of all live on our own as as units. But actually, I think people are longing for ways of connecting again now. These are divisive times, and I think people are getting bored of that, and they want some narrative that brings people together and, and says, yeah, we are all part of the same thing. We are all little communities that make bigger communities, and a flat share is a great example of that. It's a bunch of people with different needs and different backgrounds coming together to kind of create a little community. Absolutely. You've sort of said that, you know, you feel like the the need for that there's a kind of urgency at the moment. Do you feel like the the role that you guys are playing has shifted within the, the 12 years, years that you've been in business? Do you feel like it's intensified, I guess, with the climate we're currently in? Yeah, I think a couple of things have changed. I think one is that we've just got bigger, so people listen to us more. Yeah. Um, and that's just inevitable. But I also think that the dialogue's changed a bit around, you know, when I started doing my job 12 years ago, I was contacting journalists and trying to talk about renting and trying to get people in government to listen to stuff about renting. And they were all talking about homeownership. And if rents had gone up 20% in a month, that wasn't really a story. But if house prices had gone up 0.01% over a year, then that would would be a story. And people didn't want to write about renting. And now that's changed. And people are realising that the, the sort of this weird emotional fundamental relationship we have in this country with homeownership is not actually the way it's always been. And 100 years ago, 90% of us rented our homes. And in 100 years, 90% of us might rent our homes again. And we'll see this period as a little blip of home ownership where, oh, a few people own their homes and wasn't that weird. Yeah. Or it might be that we're just going through a slight decline and home ownership is on the up again. And that will be the way it always is. But I think we, because we live in the times we live in, we have this cultural sense that home ownership is what it's always been about. And an Englishman's home is his castle and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's a relatively recent thing that's in decline at the moment. So, you know, it's, it's a cultural oddity. I guess it's part of a traditional kind of ladder of success, you know, when you think about those boxes you want to tick, you know, getting the promotion, becoming a manager, having a family, owning a home, you know, I guess it has been part of the narrative of success traditionally. But I think you're right, things are broadening, I reckon now for sure. And people are thinking about the those kind of building blocks of becoming a kind of grown up if you like yes. and uh, where they fit because people are having to question it so the idea was you know you'd either you leave school you'd either go into work or go to university and you might live with a few people for a while then you live on your own then you find a partner and you live with them yeah. and you have some kids and but that's all in the home that you own because you bought it when you were 22 <laughs> and that's not reality for people now so those things about when are we going to start a family when are we going to get married when are we going to settle down where are we going to do that there's, there are married couples that get married and then carry on living in flat shares, mm. and that might not be what they've chosen to do, but that tells you that we've had to shift our thinking about what the order of life is. And I think there's not exactly an existential crisis, but there's a, a weird kind of hole going on for the generation that are growing up thinking we may never own a home. Mm. They're having to deal with that, and you can't just put your life on hold for 15 years and never go out and save every penny in case you might eventually be able to afford a home. You have to think, well, what what's going to make me happy, and how am I going to feel productive and like I'm living my life to its fullest yes. without having to wait 15 years to base that on owning a home? You know, you almost have to recalibrate your thinking, don't you, really? Yeah, and it's happening for a whole generation at the moment, um, and they're sort of refusing to just sit there and go, well, okay. So there's there's so many articles in the press about if millennials ate one less avocado a week and didn't buy takeaway coffee, they could afford a house. Yes. And it's all nonsense, of course. Um, 
and the generation that are writing those stories are the people who go, well, we didn't have credit cards and we didn't have foreign holidays and we just bought houses and we saved up and we saved up for furniture and we didn't have everything when we wanted it. And that's all true, but at the same time, a house probably cost three times the annual salary and now it's probably 10, 12 times the annual salary. So the time's different. Yes. I guess thinking then moving on to some of the, the challenges, I guess, that, that you guys and the world of renting is facing today, what, what do you think some of the biggest challenges are? Um, I think for the world of renting, it's it's we've got a, a few decisions to make about what we want renting to be because we believe that renting is a really good option for lots of people or should be. Yeah. Um, but it's reached the point where all the benefits of renting, like flexibility and affordability, and you know the ability to scale your life up and down depending on what you're doing, have been eroded by the fact that affordability is not really there anymore. It's fallen off a cliff. Mm. So. If all things are equal and you can buy a house or you can rent a house and renting's probably slightly cheaper, a lot of people would be happy to do it longer term. But what you miss out on, and often now, you know, the mortgage on a property, if you've got a deposit, is cheaper than paying the rent on it. Absolutely. But also you're not paying into that long term. The idea is with homeownership, everybody's got a stake in society. And when you retire, you've got this asset that can Mm. fund the rest of your life. And you miss out on that if you rent all the time and people are starting to resent that a bit um, and so we've got to decide whether we want to invest in renting as a tenure in general and that means long-term investment from like pension funds and institutions who want a little return on their money over 30 years mm. and don't mind people living there for three years five years redecorating you know like they do in, in Germany for example um, or the market we've got now which is dominated by smaller landlords with a few properties um, who often don't think of themselves as landlords they might be a doctor or you know then they've got a couple of properties yeah, to yeah, yeah. a pension fund almost sure and that just makes the market a bit fragmented and i feel that affordability whether it's renting or buying is the key thing we need to deal with now and every policy is really focused on a sticking plaster not the solution and it's so we can give people money to help them rent places and we can give people housing benefit to help them rent places and we can but all that does is prop prices up and so I think affordability across the board is the biggest challenge now for for renting and home ownership and just housing in general. Do you think we're going to reach a turning point? I think we have to, but I think the difficulty is we've got this little five-year political window sure. where people are going, well, my goal is to get re-elected in five years. What can I do in five years? And the answer is not really much. Yeah, like yeah, You yeah. can do something in 25 years. Yes. You know, By the time my six-year-old son is ready to buy a house, I'd hope he'd be able to afford one. But that that's almost what we're trying to do we can't fix things immediately we need the short-term stuff that sorts out homelessness and you know people who need support to be in housing but we currently spend 95 percent of our housing budget on housing benefit which props up rents and therefore that budget is going to have to get bigger what was that percentage something like 95 percent of our housing expenditure is on housing benefit and that's, I mean, in some areas, housing benefit is driving the market, you know, mm. like see some seaside towns and, and housing benefit is really important. Mm. We can't get rid of it, but it should be a short term fix for people in crisis, not a kind of long term solution because it doesn't work. You know, it's nobody is going to enjoy living a life on benefits. Sure. Nobody wants help to afford a home, um, but homes are so expensive. So we've, I think we've got some fundamental decisions about what we spend our money on to make. Mm. And it's difficult because at the moment, the political mood is let's not spend any money. And do you think the needs of the actual renters are changing as well? I think people are starting to expect a bit more from renting. Right. I think when you 
you know, you think, oh, I'm going to flat share for a couple of years and then I might rent for a couple of years and I'll buy a house. Yeah. You don't, you don't worry about that couple of years so much. You can live anywhere. And, you know, I'd certainly lived in some fairly bad rented properties in my early days. And you think, well, I'll only be here a year. It's fine. Yeah, but you when you think... you graduate to something better, I guess. Yeah. And when you think, well, hang on, this could be 10 years, could be 15 years. And you look at the, you know, it's 50% of your income is going on rent. Sure, you're paying you, you start more. thinking, well, hang on a minute. What am I getting for this? And who's, you know... I think if you buy a... £70 pair of shoes and there's a scratch on them you take them back yep. you know or you buy a pair of jeans and don't fit you take them back but you could spend you know seven, eight, nine hundred quid a month on rent and have mould on the walls or a dodgy carpet and feel like you can't complain because you don't have the power to do it and I think people are starting to realise that renters should have a little bit more control and a little mm-hmm. bit more flexibility and a little bit more of a say in the market they're basically paying for and I'm guessing that the landlords and agencies are going to have to adapt to that if enough people feel that way. And government started to realise that. So things like the ban on tenant fees, you know, yeah. has been a, a very recent and very welcome thing as far as renters are concerned. And it will affect the market on the agent and landlord side. And there will be some fallout from that, you know. But it's a way of giving some power back to renters one step at a time. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, me and my partner actually waited until the day that the fees are abolished to to sign up to our next property because it was such a significant, it's hundreds of pounds for, for lots and lots of people. I guess to your point, do you think it's going to have an effect on renting prices eventually, the fact that we've lost that fee? Yeah, it could do. Um, we'll see how it plays out. There's there's various opinions on whether, because Scotland did this first, and there's yeah. various opinions on whether it really affected rents there or not. Mm. Um, but, but ultimately, we have to find a way of making it work for tenants. And we do need landlords and we do need agents. And, and actually, one, the one thing I've learned in 12 years of spare room, and I hope I've learned more than one thing in 12 years of spare room, but one of the things I've learned is that there are like really good landlords out there. And there are, I think if you're a tenant, it's easy to think, well, landlords are all just after my money and they don't care. And that's definitely true of some. Yeah. Um, but there are good landlords out there. And we need, those are the ones we need in the market, you know, providing property and a good service and making sure you're getting what you're paying for. Yeah, it's quite easy to vilify all of them. You know, they almost become an archetype of just negativity, I guess. But you're right, there are definitely some good ones out there. And I wonder if that's a role Spare Room can play a little bit in sort of bringing both sides together because landlords are basically scared of having bad tenants that are going to trash their properties. Mm. And landlords, you know, tenants are scared of having a landlord that won't care about them and will just take their money and they'll have a, a bad experience. Um, and... It's very easy to sit on either side of that and go, well, it's not us, it's them. But actually, we need to do more to make renting work for everybody because we're always going to need rental properties, which means we're always going to need landlords mm. in some form. Um, and and having a proper grown-up dialogue about what that means mm. is really important. And I guess in many cases, you are the connector between landlords and tenants. That's how tenants find landlords. Yeah, and it's how tenants find each other and it's how homeowners rent out rooms to lodgers and it's how groups of renters kind of buddy up, come together and go and find a property. You know, it kind of works in all different ways. Moving on then to think a little bit more about communications at Spare Room. Can you tell me a little bit more about your your role and what kind of uh, communications director entails at Spare Room? Yeah, so my job basically started as content writing and developed into PR when I'd been in the job, I think, two months, and we got a call from the Chris Evans show when he did the drive time slot on Radio 2. Chris Evans show. I know, and they said, oh, we've got these stats on people taking in lodgers from, I think it was from Gumtree, but we can't get hold of their press office to talk about them. Do you want to come on instead? We went, yeah, great. 
And then we sat down and went, well, who's going to do it? And <laughs> Rupert, I found it, said, well, I'm not doing it. I'm not interested in public speaking. I'm terrified of that. And Gemma, who's our other director, said, well, I'm not doing it. Which kind of left me as the new kid. He went, well, I'll have a go. And so I had a go. And it, was, it wasn't it was a disaster. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it was. And, and so that sort of became, every time somebody wanted to speak to us, I was sort of shoved out to go and talk to people. And it developed from there, really. I became a bit of a spokesperson, got more involved with the PR done a bit of public affairs and campaigning. So one of the things we did is we spent six years campaigning for an increase to a particular tax benefit. So if you own a house mm. and you rent out a spare room to a lodger, there's an amount you can earn tax-free a year to encourage people to do it because we've got millions of empty rooms in this country. Um, and it was, But it was really low. And so we lobbied for six years and eventually got that increase to £7,500 a year to help wow. more people be encouraged to fill out, you know, fill their their empty rooms. Um, and then through that, got a bit more involved in the general housing conversation. Mm. Um, and now my role sort of sits across a lot of the outward-facing comm stuff. So it's PR, um, our social channels, you know, uh, all our content, our email marketing. And then there's a, a sort of second side to marketing, which is paid search and digital marketing, which is taken care of by somebody else. Right. And what would you say are your primary modes of kind of communicating and connecting with people? Is it socials now? Um, it's a it's a real mix actually. Mm. We tend to think of everything as conversation starting mm. rather than like here's a thing we're going to tell you. It's kind of what's the conversation we want to start, um, and then we work out how we're going to start it. And it might be through social, it might be through a PR campaign, it might be through uh, we've got a, an interesting kind of paid content campaign coming up that we're working on at the moment. It could be as simple as putting up some tube ads, but we tend to want to do something a bit more engaging than that these days that it, it, it starts a conversation about what actually matters. And I guess obviously with conversation, there's your audience on the other side who are hopefully kind of talking back to you. How do you kind of facilitate bringing that conversation back into your into your team? And that's one of the things that social is great for because mm. you get a response, whereas PR, for example, the response you get is whether the journalists write about something or not. Sure. Um, but then they may post that on their social channels and you see how their audience is talking about that. And there's there's lots of ways of getting that feedback now. And I think that's really important because as a, an online business, we've got dozens of people sat behind monitors at desks, but are dealing with the sort of the needs and the struggles of millions of people trying to find places to live and it's easy just to look at the numbers and the lines going up and down on a graph and forget that every one of those people is an individual person 100%. looking for a place to live or a person to live with and it's probably a little bit stressed while they're doing it so all those bits of feedback uh, and that's one of the reasons we do speak flatmating events is because it gets us out into a room with a bunch of renters and we hear what they're saying and what they're doing um, and all those bits of feedback are really important mm. I think you guys have done a fantastic job of kind of carving out quite a unique tone of voice within within the industry. Can you tell tell us a little bit more about Spare Room's personality, I guess, if you had to kind of describe it? So we, we would always try and be kind of a knowledgeable older friend, mm. if that makes sense. I mean, there's two. we've got two kinds of comms. We need to think about these because one of them is talking to tenants and then we basically want to be friendly and approachable, but we happen to know a little bit more about the subject and we'd like to help. Yes. And then the other side of that is we deal with kind of landlords and agents. And again, we would go, always aim for a kind of informal chatty tone, but we're there more as a, a kind of authority. Maybe it slightly leans towards that because of the data we've got on the market and the position we're in. Um, but it's always that sense of, and I think this is always important, like this tone of voice is you think of it as you are the same person, but you 
slightly modulate your tone of voice depending on the setting. So, for example, I might sit here and chat to you about stuff on a podcast and I'm trying not to um and uh and mumble too much and I'm probably not going to swear. Uh, but if I was chatting to my mates in the pub, then maybe I would. Yeah. And But then if I was, for whatever reason, in court, I'd probably speak slightly differently. <laughs> if I'm doing an interview on TV, I'd speak differently. They're all me. It's just, you and it's you know, in the way that you dress differently for different yeah, occasions. You, you have a voice, but you use it slightly differently depending on the context. Yes, that makes perfect sense. Do you find it difficult sometimes kind of marrying, as you said, that kind of dual role? So speaking on behalf of the the landlord and also the renters? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes we do, do actually. And it's, it's I think, because we've we kind of got three audiences. And mm-hmm. one is a landlord and agent audience, which is maybe a bit more B2B. Um, it's where, you know, we're talking to people who are using us as part of a business. We're talking to renters on the other side who you know they're not business at all they're just consumers um and we have a very different approach for that but then we've got this chunk in the middle who are homeowners taking in lodgers who are kind of the landlord but they're going to live with the person they take in so they're also a flatmate yes and they're not a business and they're not but they're also not just a renter and there's a they kind of sit in the middle of that mix a bit Mm. so we have to be careful to make sure that we're picking out the right messaging for the right people in the right way and it, for a landlord the kind of messaging they're going to want is here's some information we've got on how you can rent your properties out what tenants want how we can help you tenants can, will respond to a wide range of stuff and it it may be that they use us once in a year for three weeks mm. and then don't need us again so we have to communicate with them in a way that engages people at the point where they're not looking to use spare room um, and then the kind of lodger landlord group probably want a little bit more reassurance because they're going to take a stranger into their house and they want some advice and some help and a bit of reassurance and that's going to work okay. Mm. And they're very different ways of communicating. So a lot of our outward-facing PR and comms campaigns are basically aimed at tenants and we mm. can have a bit more fun with some of those. So, for example, when Eurovision was on, we um, created a pizza with 41 different cheeses on to represent each country participating based on the idea that Everybody loves a Eurovision party in their flat. The, the food that people tend to eat at these occasions is pizza. Um, and just the idea that food brings people together a little bit. And so we created this ridiculously cheesy pizza. 41. And yeah, and, and they are, you know, the, the idea is ridiculous. But there's an underlying, the conversation we wanted to start was, it's good to eat together. It's like good when people live together if they interact a bit. And one of the things that brings people together is food. And that's really important. Yeah. And Whatever comms message we put out, we always want there to be a smooth line through to being able to say, this is about people living together, really, and what's important and why renting counts and why people are important. And and so any story, whether it's one we did last year about trying to encourage more landlords to take tenants with pets, or yeah. we did one about should we use DNA testing kits to match flatmates, we, you know, they're, wow. and, and they're very different approaches, but hopefully all lead through to a similar conversation about what really matters when you rent. Mm. That was going to be my next question, actually, thinking about kind of campaigns and conversations that you guys have started over the last 12 years. What have been some of your your favourites or ones you've been most proud of? So I think uh, like one end of it, this, that six-year campaign to actually get a policy change okay. through in the budget was Definitely kind of, proud of, you know, um, that, that was really satisfying because it felt like we'd really made a, a, a sort of niche story within the property world, but an important one mm-hmm. heard and you know sort of taken into account but some of the fun ones are great you know i would really enjoy doing the cheesy pizza one because we got to eat some pizza um and it's fun to have fun ideas and i think sometimes 
in the early days, we tried to get people to write about flat sharing by talking about flat sharing and yeah. going, and this is the age of people flat sharing and this is the average rents and this is what's changing. And that's fine and we still do that. But we've started to do stuff that kind of attracts attention more and make, makes people sit up and think, oh, what's going on there? And then you can lead them into a conversation. So one of the things we did last year, um, for example, is we released a podcast of five and a half hours of people laughing. And the idea was based out of the kind of slow TV, kind of the idea that watching something slow and boring or just listening to something long and kind of repetitive yeah. um, was something people were talking about quite a lot. And the idea is if you hear other people laugh, it tends to make you smile, it tends to make you laugh without you really thinking about it. And of course, we don't want anybody to listen to five and a half hours of other people laughing, but the idea was it was a ridiculous idea that got people to go, what are you doing that for? And you go, well, do you know, actually... Laughter is really important and we've realised when people share properties together that being in a conversation with the people you live with and doing stuff together and actually laughing together, talking together, interacting is going to give you... And it, then you're off and you're, so we can talk about the stuff we want to talk about. Whereas if we put out a press release saying living with people is all about people and it's really important, mm. we'll go, yeah, and? Mm. And so it's just finding ways to kind of come at that conversation from different angles. Yeah, almost to act as a starter for 10, I guess, basically, to kind of spark that that conversation in a more interesting way. So one of the things we did last year was we created an infographic to show how Ross could have got his sofa up the stairs in that episode of Friends where he just shouts pivot for 20 minutes. And again, so smart because everyone watches Friends together, you know, in in their shared flats. And and particularly now it's back on Netflix and, you know, you'd see teenagers and people in their early 20s wandering around with Friends hoodies on. And it's just a cultural thing. It's just everywhere. And it is one of those iconic moments that if you've lived in a rental property, you've had a moment like that at some point. And it didn't start a particularly deep, meaningful conversation about how people connect as humans, but it made people smile. And it made people go, yeah, like that, that renting, that's one of the things about renting that is a bit weird. And it's nice to just do that sometimes. Absolutely. You know, not everything has to have a a sort of deep meaning that runs to the very core of your brand. But it's nice when things do. Thinking back to your personality as well, acting as a friend, you know, that's another way of flexing and, and making people laugh, I guess. And and one of the things that that we always think about with stuff like that is is how you use language. Mm. And it can I think sometimes when people start working for us and send us bits of writing and I edit them and they get a lot of red marks back. And it's usually just all I'm trying to do is make stuff readable and simple. And it's mm. getting your head around that because when people write, they tend to write really formally. Yeah. And you know, like and if I'm chatting to you. I I would say, I, I don't know, I'd say, oh, I'd have gone out the weekend, but it was raining, I didn't want to. And I, But you write that down because I would have gone out at the weekend, but it was raining, I did not want to. Yes. And you suddenly feel like you're in some kind of test. Yes. And if you're communicating people with people, an informal tone usually helps. Mm. And just getting people to get their head around that and lean into it and accept it and not feel, but oh, I'm writing really sloppily here, it's not. And it's not at all, it's just it's taking the gap between you and the person you're trying to talk to away just by being less formal. So that's kind of a tiny way we do things like that. And it's it's always being aware of stuff like that that, that actually makes a difference in the end, I think. Mm. We've talked already a little bit, well, well, it's come up quite a lot about the cultural conversation around renting and letting, you know, rising renting fees, abolished agency fees, the rise of things like communal living, um, you know, the cultural conversation around renting and letting is evolving every day. And we've talked about kind of your role within that. How how do you go about being part of the cultural conversation, I guess? I think um, it's a really interesting one, actually, because some of that is being part of the conversation that's going on. And any part of working in communications is about seeing what the conversations that are occurring now are mm. and taking part in those. Yes. 
but that's always slightly reactive and you're always slightly run the risk of bandwagon jumping when you do that um but it's important to do it because you want to talk about the things people are talking about because they'll relate to them and the, but the important thing is to and i think this is maybe one of those things that you have to keep doing within a business is understanding who you are as a business and what your point of view is and where you sit on stuff. So you can start some conversations as well and go, yeah, I know we're all talking about this, but look over here, there's this, we need to talk about this, which we've sort of done over a decade with flat sharing is just sort of banging on about it in different ways and going, look, when you're thinking about housing, don't just talk about ownership, talk about renting. And when you're talking about renting, talk about flat sharing because actually one of the conversations that's rolling on and on now is about affordability. And somewhere like we are now in London, which is really expensive, is starting to price people out. People have reached the point where they're going, well, I can't. What do I do? Where do I go and live now? Because I can't live here. And then you end up with a city. And this is also true in Manchester. Like There's a really thriving media and tech scene in Manchester. Um, and it's not as expensive as London. Mm. So that's a good experience for people. But as our cities get more and more expensive the kind of creativity and diversity and kind of cultural mix that makes them amazing starts to get bled out and you end up with a city that's just a theme park for rich people and tourists and all the service industry people get bussed in from Watford at midnight, you know, to clean tables and serve drinks. And yeah. and it's happening around the world, you know, around the Western world, certainly. So, you know, London is ridiculously expensive. New York, San Francisco has gone through, you know, San Francisco itself is quite a small city. It's only sort of seven mile square. And, it's traditionally been a really artistic, really vibrant, creative, diverse city that is now full of tech companies that pay really high wages. Mm. And it's squeezing those artistic communities out. And it happens everywhere. You know, New York's the same. Brooklyn was the place all the artists went to. And now they can't afford to be there, so they go somewhere else. And eventually the coffee shops and the money follows the artists. Mm. And then the artists have to go somewhere else. It's that, that gentrification conversation is one that's rolling on and on. Um, but it does, I think we risk losing the heart of what some of our cities are if we're not careful. And I guess it's a good point that you were sort of saying within the 10 years, I guess there'll be spikes where culturally we have that conversation and then I guess it kind of dies. But as you said, it's your role, I guess, to continue that fight when other people perhaps aren't looking or or lost interest or going in a different direction and yeah and you get times any conversation where that's the conversation of the day and lots of people talk about it and then you know a year later it's forgotten about yeah and it's and we're still here talking yeah, about the same exactly. things because the same things matter to the same group of people and the flat share market particularly sort of renews every year as people graduate and move looking for work and you know a whole new wave of people come in at the bottom end of the market um so it's not the same bunch of people all the time and they're concerns and their ideas and their worries and their hopes change a little bit with each year and each generation and the people entering the flat share market now are very different to the people entering the flat share market when I did but at the same time the fundamental things they care about are the same where can I find somewhere to live that I'll be happy I can afford I can get to the places I want to mm. and I can live the kind of life I want to live thinking a little bit about technology now then so spare room have always embraced new technologies I'd say and different ways of helping people access rented properties. How important do you think it is to embrace new technologies and I guess new methods when it comes to helping people to rent properties? Uh, those are, those feel like two slightly different things. So our position on new technology is that well, we're not really a tech company. We're really a people matching rental company um, that is enabled by tech. So the people side of it and getting the product right and doing that is more important than 
being the first to use new mm. tech, but we should always see what's out there. So, for example, something like AI at the moment might be a bit of a distraction if you try and weave that into the platform somewhere. But if we can use it behind the scenes to help our moderation team weed out all, all the dodgy ads that don't make it onto the site, or if we can help our customer services team by looking at things like that, then we should be. Mm. Um, so we're always, we, we're not the kind of company who feel like we have to be the first to use something. We have to be using it right when we use it. And so the tech is never what leads us. It's mm. always the like customer first. We've got a few key kind of, most companies call them values. We tend to call out as behaviors because it's about what you do, not kind of a set of stuff you stick on the wall. And, um, and the first one is putting our customers first. And so across the company, whatever we do has to be, does this is this going to work for the customers? Because if we found a nice new bit of kit we want to play with, that's great. But but what does it actually do for the experience? So, and that's always a balance. You have to, you know, you don't want to sit around ignoring all the new tech because mm. it doesn't help the customer. But it's finding that balance really, finding the right tools that work, that do the job, and also keep developers happy because developers want to use new tech and they want to be working with the stuff that is exciting and is around at the time. Mm. It's always people first, I guess. Mm, yes, and so things like, um, like, for example, we were quite early to the to the game with having an iPhone app. We had a developer who came to work for us. He was supposed to be a web developer, but actually had really good app development skills, and we just let him build us an app, and that was great. We ended up, you know, learning a lot very quickly and having a really sort of strong, stable app that gained a big audience much more quickly than we probably would have done if we'd waited. Mm. And sometimes that's the way it works. You just get somebody in the company who's particularly good at something or passionate about something and can convince you that that's going to be good for your users. And you go, well, great, let's do that. Out of interest, have lots of users migrated to the app now over the actual laptop web web version? <laughs> The migration's really been from desktop to mobile, yeah. um, and people use different platforms for different things. So the app is particularly great for checking your messages on the go. Uh, so if you've yeah. got a load of messages to your ad and you're replying to things and you're out and about, and that's great. That's sure. much easier than going to the mobile website or casting your laptop around with you. But if you like want to place an ad, sometimes you want to put a load of photos on it. Can be easier to put a lot of text in on a laptop. Yeah. Um, so people tend to use multiple platforms for different things. Yeah, it's almost like a Facebook Messenger style. Uh, I've used the ad, the uh, the messaging function very recently, and yeah, it worked fantastically on the go to uh, book in those slots, I guess, to find a new um, housemate. And that's kind of the heart of the experience, really, is the messaging thing, because it's the communication between people that starts what will turn into a flat share or a renting relationship or whatever. And then finally, thinking about the future. So uh, some some big questions here, and, and I, I don't expect you to have a definitive answer on these, but um, how do you see the renting landscape changing, I guess, over, let's say, the next, the next 50 years? I think that's, that's really interesting because if you look 50 years ahead and look 50 years back, yeah. like if you go back to where we were, we will basically be in a situation where most people rent again and we could well be headed that way mm. um, but it's sort of impossible to tell because it feels like a decision was taken in the 60s 70s and 80s that home ownership was the thing that empowered people gave them a stake in society gave them you know some control over their lives and I think it's going to be really hard to let go of that because um, I think all those things are true you know home ownership, home ownership does a lot for people but it doesn't work at the moment because most people can't get their deposit together can't afford it yeah um and so i think it's finding that balance what i'd like to see is that we end up with a 
a position where flat sharing, renting, home ownership are all available to people and they choose what suits them at the point in their life they're at. If you want to be flexible, you rent. If you want to settle down and, you know, you, you buy a house. But your financial future and your present happiness are not dependent on being at the whim of how the market works, like at the mercy of just doing what you can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Home is the most fundamental thing in our lives, I think, um, and that's kind of what we believe at Spare Room in general is that it's the it's the basis for living a happy, productive life in, wh- in whatever that means to you. Like having that basis that when you go home at night and you shut the door, you're somewhere you feel safe, comfortable, and hopefully connected with some people, um, so that you can go and do what you want to do. You shouldn't be spending half your life thinking about where can I live, where should I live, how can I afford to live. Well, you'd be going right, great. There's home sorted. Now, what do I want to do? What do I want to be? What do I want to do in the world? Contribute, you know? Yeah, almost the foundation that you can then live your life on. It's why we, you know, films are made about home and songs are written about home, and it's such a strong concept. Um, you know, after the. September the 11th attacks in the States, they created Department of Homeland Security. They didn't create a Department of Anti-Terrorism. They didn't create a Department of Internal Defense. They Homeland Security. Like The word home is yes, such yeah, a powerful yeah. thing. Um, it's And that home is about... If it should be a scalable thing. Home should be you. It should be you and your close circle of people. It should be the place you live. That's the property or the street or the town or the country or the we're, we're all just a collection of little communities making bigger communities and i think when we remember that life's generally better do you feel like spare room is going to continue to evolve moving forward as well i guess we've obviously spoken a lot about people first i guess you know as the needs of people and renters change do you feel you yourselves will will evolve as well yeah definitely and i think that can work in a couple of ways one way we're evolving is we are taking what we do to the States because there's some cities there that really desperately need something similar. Yeah, People use Craigslist over there, which is a very clunky, sprawling, dense, weird experience. It's a funny thing. It's It's like a relic. It's quite retro. You hear about it in conversations from like the 80s, 90s. It's actually kind of amazing that it still plays such a role today. Yeah, and it's just become so embedded in people's experiences that they find it hard to let go of. I think Um, there's so much on there. So that's, you know, that's one evolution for us is just to go and do the same thing somewhere else, which has its whole load of other challenges. Absolutely. Might be basically the same language, but culturally, they're, you know, very different places and different cities in the States are culturally different. And um, so that's really interesting because you can't just replicate your last winning game when you go somewhere else. You have to play the game that exists there. And that's mm. teaching us a whole load. Um, but it's also, I think, about as people rent for longer and people need different things from renting, there's other things we can do in the rental space that will smooth the process out and make it easier for people. There are some pain points at the moment, and one of them has been around deposits and the cap on deposits, which came in as part of the tenant fees ban, has helped with that. But like in little ways, internally, one of the things we've done is we've introduced a scheme where anybody who works for spare room needs a rental deposit, we'll lend it to them. So, wow. you know, most companies will lend you the money to buy a bike to ride to work on and they'll lend you money for a season ticket to get to work yeah and actually a rental deposit is probably going to be less than that over a year so why wouldn't companies lend their staff money interest-free to rent somewhere because you don't get your deposit back until after you had to pay the, no, exactly. the next one and it's such a big thing but such a simple thing um and there are things we can maybe do to make renters lives easier across the board that mm. go along with that find some of the real pain points around the experience beyond just finding the place and smoothing some of them out getting them out of the way you know and that's 
that's one of the bits we'll be looking at in the next couple of years. And and kind of finally, I guess thinking specifically about communications and more broadly, what's kind of coming up from Spare Room that we can sort of look forward to? I think there's there's a lot of the conversations we're having now are around um, what really matters yeah. to, to people and home is obviously part of that. But one of the things we've come across is a lot of kind of stories around loneliness amongst young people at the moment, which seems ridiculous that you can live in a city of millions of people, work in an office with 200 people, yep. get on a bus with 100 people in the yep. morning, go home to a flat you share with three other people and still <laughs> feel lonely. But it's possible because we we do live in slightly isolating times, I think, and and we've got a role we can play there to help people sort of remember that that's not the only option. Um and I think it's particularly true in a city like London or New York with these places people turn up with a suitcase and a dream and it's, you know, I'm looking for a new, what you're looking for is a new life, like a new version of you, a new adventure. And if you don't find people quickly, yeah, you can feel really lonely, particularly if it's an expensive city and you can't afford to go out. And so you go to work and you go home and sit in your room eating pot noodle on your bed and watching telly. Mm. Six months of that and anybody's going to want to leave and go home. But if you find two or three people that you can either know the city and can share it with you or you can discover it together, suddenly you've got your little foothold and then it seems a bit less lonely and you learn your little bit of the city and then you learn a few more and then all of a sudden it's your city and it's unlocked it for you and you've got that transition where you've moved to a city and then that's your home. But with cities like London and New York, you don't you can be a New Yorker or a Londoner just by turning up and living there for a bit. They're not like, you know, that's the beauty of cities. They welcome you with open arms. They go, come on in. Um, but that initial bit can be difficult. And if you get over that bit quickly, and it's people that will do that, not anything else, then all of a sudden you've got this new life. And it can be the difference between I am now living the life I was dreaming of ten years ago and I tried it for three months and went back home and I'm always going to slightly regret that. And so Loneliness in a, a kind of multifaceted way is a big conversation, not just in a kind of loneliness as a mental health issue, but loneliness as a why aren't we all more connected? Why aren't yeah. we why aren't we kind of looking out and and that sense that loneliness is not addressed by the lonely person asking for help, it's addressed by all of us not leaving people behind. And so that's that's you know, that's a big conversation at the moment. That you guys are helping sort of I guess facilitate. Yeah, and it's that's, that's one of the things we're going to focus on for, for the rest of the year is just talking about different ways we can come together. And one, yeah. of the, one of the things we've talked about recently quite a lot with the pizza thing we discussed and with some other things is, is eating together is a big part mm. of that. And if every flat share, whether they've got busy lives and talk to each other or not, sat down and ate together once a week, they would communicate better. 100%. They would, whether they wanted to spend all their time together and be best mates or not, doesn't really matter, but it, they would feel slightly more connected so why families eat together it's about just remembering that you are a unit rather than a collection of individuals and I think the world needs more of that at the moment I couldn't agree more Matt honestly this has been such a fascinating conversation one that I could continue for hours and hours and hours but um, I'll let you go uh, I can't thank you enough honestly it's been a pleasure it's been great thank you I love I love talking about this kind of stuff it's really important and it's you know I think it's the it's the stuff that matters and it's an endlessly interesting topic yeah can't wait to see uh sort of what the future holds cheers thanks a lot